Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Elliot Oring is a folklorist drawn to the study of humor. In his new book, out from Utah State University Press called Joking Asides, Oring draws on the work of scholars from several disciplines, anthropology, folklore, philosophy, psychology, linguistics, and literature, to ask basic questions about the construction and evolution of jokes, untangle the matter of who the actual targets of a joke might be, and characterize the artistic qualities of jokes and joke performance. We're going to talk about uh, ideas included in uh, several of the chapters, including what Freud actually said about jokes. Uh, Framing Borat, uh, talking about the uh, movie uh, by Sasha Baron Cohen. Risky business, political jokes under repressive regimes, listing toward lists, jokes on the Internet, and contested performance and joke aesthetics. Elliot Oring is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at California State University, Los Angeles. His books include Israeli Humor, the jokes of Sigmund Freud and jokes and their relations, and he serves on the editorial board of Humor, International Journal of Humor Research. Elliot Oring, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I wonder, first of all, uh, uh, how did or why did you get into the study of uh, humor as a folklorist? Uh, I was somewhat of an accident uh, when I was doing my doctoral work in um, folklore at Indiana University. I took myself off to Israel to try and study what new traditions, new folklore traditions, might have been created by the existence of a new state. And in the course of doing that, I was turned to a particular kind of joke uh, that was new, that was thought of as new, and was thought of as characterizing a particular group. And because I started studying that particular tradition, I was drawn into the question of how jokes work, and all the other kinds of subsidiary questions concerning jokes. What well, what was the new what was the new form of, of of humor? New form of joke. Well, the new form actually went back into the forties. It was called chizbat, which is basically an Arabic word. Uh, the people who told these were a particular um, military group, a Jewish military group called the Palmach, and um, they saw these jokes as distinct from what has often been called Jewish humor and characterized it as saying something important about themselves, Um, although they could never articulate what it was that they thought was important about it. Um, So the problem was trying to, first of all, collect all this material, translate all this material, and then analyze it to try and figure out what exactly did these jokes have to say. Hmm. That's important, isn't it, that humor, jokes uh, that a particular culture or subculture uses uh, can help delineate that. It, 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 it's a defining characteristic of a culture. It has become uh, so, but uh, one has to be careful. There are a lot of uh, humor is a universal. I pr- there's probably no culture that we know of uh, where you don't find people who are saying things and acting in certain ways to provoke what I would call amusement. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they use that form of amusement as a means of self-definition. But in modern times, very often, uh, people have elevated humor to kind of a national characteristic or group characteristic. And, uh, you know, nations, the English, like to talk about English humor and characterize it in a certain way. Uh, Jews have talked about Jewish humor, and others have talked about it as well as some kind of distinctive form of humor. So these things have been elevated to kind of national identifiers. But the, you say this is a fairly recent development. Uh, I, yes, I think uh-huh. it is a fairly recent development. I think it's a characteristic modernity. Uh, not, uh, I mean, the humor is old. Uh, yeah. People told jokes and uh, engaged in the telling of humorous tales and uh, humorous remarks uh, for millennia. Uh, but characterizing themselves in terms of some corpus of uh, humorous expression, I think, is fairly new. Now, the study of humor goes way back, right? In your preface, you're at the uh, you know Greek philosophers contemplate the nature of laughter. That's right. Um, the Greek philosophers didn't talk about humor per se; they talked about laughter and what precipitated laughter. Um, Aristotle, uh, Plato, all of these people talk about laughter, and it's kind of interesting that despite the fact that the conversation started 2,500 years ago, um, we're still talking about it, and we still haven't resolved some of the very fundamental problems in trying to 
identify the uh, essence of humor and what it is that makes people uh, find amusement in certain forms of expression and then secondarily laugh at that uh, because of that amusement. What what makes humor difficult to, to pin down? We've been working on it for, you know, 2,500 years, and uh, you say there's oh, still... About, you know, there are, there, are, there are probably a good dozen theories of what um, humor is. Uh, you know, uh, Aristotle thought it was a piece of ugliness which caused no pain. Um, and uh, actually, that idea has kind of reemerged in certain modern theories, such as something called benign violation theory, but I, I think it doesn't stand up. And there are a whole host of other theories, the psychoanalytic theory of Freud, um, the um, superiority theory that's attributed usually to Thomas Hobbes. Uh, there's pretty much uh, no end of theories. Uh, and even the kind of theoretical approach I take, which is called appropriate incongruity, uh, which involves the perception of an appropriate relationship between elements from domains that are generally regarded as incongruous, um, that's really something that's articulated already in the um, uh, 18th century. Um, and, uh, but you articulate a particular position, but very often people say it and then leave it behind. Uh, applying it and testing it becomes the critical matter. Hmm. Uh, so, to, putting on devil's advocate hat, uh, I, you know, I, I know some people in the audience will have this question: um, mm-hmm. Why study humor? You know, why don't why can't we just leave it as funny? It's it's funny. It's funny, right? Well, yeah. If you want entertainment, it's <laughs> funny. The question is, you know, it it seems to be a very distinct trait of human beings. So, if you want to know something about human beings, it would seem appropriate to investigate those things that characterize them. Uh, as a unique species. Uh, Aristotle thought it was rationality, and uh, I don't disagree with Aristotle on that point, but one might just as well say that uh, humans are the humorous animal. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah, I guess that is true. Um, I want to d- jump into uh, talking about Freud, your chapter, first chapter, what Freud actually said about jokes, and with you know, as with so many things moving into the modern period. We, uh, we, we have to deal with, with Freud. You write, even though Freud's book on jokes is widely recognized, not necessarily widely read, I fail uh, on both accounts. I didn't even know it was out there. Um, so well, tell us about I, I that. mean, in fairness, uh, I, was, I was speaking to a great extent to other scholars who know that he wrote a book, but they don't necessarily have read it and often characterize the book on the basis of secondary information about the book, things they've read about it rather than having read it. And um, if you go through uh, the literature on humor written by scholars primarily, they often have certain things to say about Freud's theory, which is essentially that jokes are simply a bubbling up of unconscious forces uh, that get expressed uh, in jokes and like dreams and like slips of the tongue, which Freud also wrote about. Uh, they manage to relieve a certain kind of pressure arising in the unconscious with regard to impulses, usually sexual or aggressive impulses, uh, that um, can't uh, seek an outlet otherwise. Uh, And that's usually how they characterize it, and it's considerably more, I think, complicated than that and subtle than that. And Freud was a subtle thinker. Um, If you read any of his books, just along the way, he makes observations and has insights that may be tangential to his main point that are sometimes startling and brilliant. By the way, I, uh, this is another thing I learned, uh, that uh, like these little tidbits. Uh, you, you say in the beginning of this chapter that Freud's publisher, um, you say you have to give him some credit for taking on the project, talking about the book on jokes, because he'd only sold some 350 copies of Interpretation of Dreams at, at that point. We, we, we see it as iconic, but uh, at the beginning... You know, who knew if it was going to sell? That's right. That's why you need university presses today, because uh, it's probably rare that a university press sells more than 350 or 400 copies of a book. And uh, without university presses, uh, a lot of books would never get published. So Back then, uh, private publishers were willing to take more risks. Mm. 
We'll put in a plug here for Utah State University Press. Uh, uh, I think that's worthwhile. <laughs> who published your, your book, Joking Aside. We're talking with Elliot Oring, uh, who is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at uh, Cal- California State uh, University, Los Angeles. And uh, his books uh, include the Israeli humor, the jokes of Sigmund Freud, jokes and their relations. The new book is Joking Aside, subtitle is The Theory Analysis and Aesthetics uh, of Humor. Um, speaking of uh, Freud, since we're on the, this topic, um, I thought this might be a good uh, place to have you perhaps settle an argument between me and a friend of mine. Um, to put you on the spot here, uh, maybe just get this un- into... Well, I don't, I don't have to hear the sides yeah. of the argument. I just want to know who's <laughs> going to pay me more. Who's going to pay you more? Okay. <laughs> all, all the check's in the mail already, so so you know, yeah, lean toward me, is what I'm saying. Um, no, I'll, I'll have you be, be impartial. I have a friend who says, uh, uh, this friend notes that I, that I often make jokes, Um and uh, this friend says that I'm revealing something about myself in every joke. In other words, there's truth in every joke that perhaps I'm unconsciously revealing about myself. I say sometimes I'm just joking. Joking is joking. Well, I think both both positions are correct. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one of the things that um, one of the legacies of Freud's book is that. Um, People have come to believe that uh, when you joke, you're revealing the darkest, you know, the darkest impulses that that you have, even unknown to yourself. Um, of course, I, I don't happen to think that that's particularly true. It's it's probably true on occasion, and certainly the kinds of jokes you gravitate towards and tell repeatedly, and your favorite jokes, I would argue, do reveal something about yourself. But very often we tell jokes because they're entertaining, and we're called upon to be entertaining in very particular social circumstances. So, you know, very often you'll find people telling jokes in a kind of competitive joke-telling session, people standing around exchanging jokes, trying to top the last one that they heard. And um, in those kind of cases, it's not necessarily uh, revealing something uh, really deep about about the performer. Um, on occasion, it may be, but I don't think you can take that as a hard and fast rule. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, more with Elliot Oring, whose new book is out from Utah State <laughs> University Press. Joking Asides is what it's uh, called. And uh, in the book, uh, Oring draws on the work of scholars from several disciplines to ask basic questions about the construction and evolution of jokes untangle the matter of who the uh, actual targets of joke might be and characterize the artistic qualities of jokes and joke performances. When we come back, I want to jump to the last uh, chapter, and Elliot Oring just made reference to joke performance. And uh, you say, Elliot Oring, I want to have you talk about this when we come back. Uh, you, uh, This chapter had its genesis in a couple of friends, Daniel and Diane, right, who are, who are known to tell jokes at parties and critique each other's jokes. They sound like <laughs> fun people. Uh, let's talk about that and much more including a discussion of the movie Borat by Sasha Baron Cohen and who the, who the targets of humor might be following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Let's get this one right. The group leader called out to her team who was building a complex custom demise. Then she corrected herself. She said, let's get this one righter. Awkward language aside, people who work continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, or enterprise excellence know that every product and every process can be made better. Nothing is ever perfect. They are comfortable with the permanent question, how can I make that better? If you cannot see ways to improve your product or service, ask your customer. If they don't tell you, your competitor might. But by then it might be too late and you'll be out of the game. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Elliot Oring is a folklorist drawn to the study of humor, and his new book is Joking Asides. Uh, in it, he asks basic questions about the construction and evolution of jokes, entangles the matter of who the actual targets of joke might be, characterizes the artistic qualities of joke and joke performances. 
Uh, and uh, we're going to, as we go along, discuss the ideas in several of uh, the chapters, including um, a very interesting uh, chapter uh, titled Risky Business, Political Jokes Under Repressive Regimes. We'll talk about uh, title, uh, a chapter titled Framing Borat. We're talking about the movie Borat from 2007, Sasha Baron Cohen, and jokes on the Internet. And you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. And uh, you can email us to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Ellie Doring, I'd like to talk about the, the last chapter in the book. Uh, you talk, previous chapter, about uh, jokes and humor as art. And then you get into uh, the, the title of the chapter, Contested Performance and Joke Aesthetics. And you get into talking about performance of the joke, uh, talking about uh, friend, your friends Daniel and Diane. Tell us about them. Well, very often people look at jokes, including scholars, and they see them only as texts and books. I mean, after all, most people's uh, encounter with jokes is only through uh, texts in books or on the Internet or something like that. And uh, quite frankly, um, they overlook the idea that uh, orally communicated jokes are, are performed. And um, that is, people who tell them take a certain kind of artistic responsibility for the performance, and they expect their performance to be evaluated. Now, some people do this to a lesser extent. They're not accomplished joke tellers. They don't think of themselves as accomplished joke tellers and uh, just want to contribute a minimum in order to get by in a social situation. But there are many others who tell jokes who are accomplished tellers, who think of themselves as accomplished tellers, pride themselves on their ability to tell jokes, and actually it's part of their persona, a joke-telling persona. And these people uh, spend quite a bit of time thinking about jokes, looking at the jokes that they tell and improving the jokes that they tell, and looking for feedback on the jokes that they tell. And that chapter about contested, ex um, uh, contested performance is really about two accomplished joke-tellers who criticize each other's performance. And in fact, they they were they were known to tell jokes, and they they would criticize each other's performance. That the critique would happen in the in the middle, I guess. Uh, it was kind of interesting because the first time I noticed it, they had always told jokes, but I didn't recall ever seeing them go at it, hammer and tongs, in terms of criticizing the other's performance. So this was a situation. Of course, as a folklorist, you want to record these situations and analyze them, but I was in no position to do so at a dinner party. Uh, so I had to kind of create another dinner party in which there was a tape recorder present, and fortunately they seemed to go at it the exact same way and with the same kinds of jokes and the same criticisms. So um, it gave me an opportunity to really look at how they were thinking about not only the other person's joke, but how they were looking at their own joke repertoire hmm. and their own joke-telling ability. Yeah, that's the <laughs> perils of being a folklorist, right? You have to you have to try to recreate this so that you can record them. But but apparently, you uh, say that luckily they 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 brought their A game to your to your party. They did. Uh, they did. They they recapitulated pretty well what had occurred at the in the natural situation. Yeah. So what what do you think that's that's about? That this is there contest here because they're critiquing each other. Yes, there is a contest. They are critiquing each other, but I think the more important element is trying through their critique to understand how they view their own performances, what their own particular joke aesthetic happens to be. And um, the general attitude that's been expressed by philosophers of aesthetics and even some folklorists is that jokes aren't worth thinking about. They're too ephemeral. They're too short. Uh, there's no real aesthetic there. And when you look at these two joke tellers, you see that they're thinking about their jokes um, uh, in a very uh, deep way and actually have a kind of critical vocabulary for expressing uh, their preferences and um, animosities, if you want, uh, about certain kinds of joke telling. And um, it comes out clearly. These people do think about their jokes. They have preferences, structural preferences, uh, uh, prosodic preferences. Uh, that emerge when you actually look at how they criticize one another. What do you think is going on there? Uh, I wonder because you know some people aren't into that, right? They they enjoy hearing a joke, but they don't 
really tell many jokes. Others are like your friends who who pride themselves on on being good uh, joke tellers. And so, for those people, what what do you think is going on? What are, what are they trying well, to express? Well, to a certain extent, I, I I think you know. In my life, I've probably have made a painting, but I don't consider myself a painter. Uh, but people who paint seriously are criticizing other other painters and criticizing their own painting and looking to improve it in various kinds of ways. And people who tell jokes as a, a regular part of their social interaction, I think, very often think about their jokes in the same way that a painter might think about their painting as something that has certain kinds of form, certain kinds of texture, certain kinds of color. Uh, and uh, they think about these things, not necessarily, uh, you know, s- sitting and uh, contemplating it, in, you know, in, t- in formal philosophical terms, but they're, they're criticizing their performance in aesthetic terms, and they are using that criticism to improve their own joke-telling. Hmm. And there, I, I guess it's, uh, well, I've experienced this. You, you, know, you go to a party, you tell a joke. There, there is a thrill there. There's a power there. I can understand where it, why people get into stand-up comedy. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes just changing a word in a joke improves it considerably. Um, and people will, you know, change the wording of their joke in order to make sure that it is actually uh, the better version that they produce rather than the worse version. I've seen other situations of competitive uh, joke telling, unfortunately, without uh, the ability to record it. But I remember one very good joke teller hearing uh, another version of the joke they told and said, actually, that's a better version, Hmm. you know. Hmm. They actually liked it better. Now, I never got to see whether they actually incorporated that into their own performance later on, uh, but there was an acknowledgement that, in fact, the joke that they liked wasn't being uh, expressed in the best possible manner. Hmm. So part of this is aesthetics. You, you want to get it to the best possible level. Um, well, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, just like when you paint a painting or write an essay or do an interview, you want to do the best you possibly can, mm-hmm. uh, and you want to avoid the kinds of mistakes you made in previous attempts. I, uh, I had an uncle, he's, he's now passed, who I would, I, I never expressed this to him, I would have considered it impolite, but he would, I consider him not very good at delivering jokes. He had some good jokes and some good anecdotes, but uh, the, the delivery was, was just not good, and I would think to myself, uh, you know, give that one to me, uncle, and I, I'll, I'll punch it up for you. Uh, Absolutely. Um, there are people who can ruin a perfectly good joke. Um, and, uh, you know, you can give people the best paints in the world and the best canvas in the world, and um, what they produce is just a um, uh, the essence of ineptitude. And there is something interesting uh, going on there as well, because in the case of my uncle, he, he did enjoy telling the jokes or telling the, the anecdotes. And probably in his mind, they were going well. Um, I, well, oh. unless there was something to indicate to him that they weren't going well, if he didn't get negative feedback of some sort, uh, then there'd be no reason for him to think that he wasn't doing a very good job. And that's, you know, that's true in anything. Teachers who don't feed back to students that their essays have problems with them um, leave students to think, for example, that they're doing a terrific job. As a teacher, I often had students come to me and say, you know, I've, I've always gotten A's. I'm an A student. Why didn't I get an A? And, you know, the only thing I could respond was, I don't know what an A student is, but I know what A work is, and this wasn't an example of A work. Yeah, so it, it's it's a better kindness to, to actually, you know, tell them the truth. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're talking with Elliot Oring, and his book is Joking Asides, um, and it's out from Utah State University Press. Elliot Oring, I want to jump to your very interesting chapter on uh, Borat. You, uh, this is, uh, you, you take a piece of, a pretty famous piece of popular culture. Uh, this is the film uh, Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan, released in 2007. I think most people are... If they haven't seen the film, they are aware of it. Uh, Sasha Baron uh, Baron Cohen. Uh, so first of all, tell us what uh, what Baron Cohen was going for here. What you know the 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 gist of the film. Well, it was a fake uh, documentary, or uh, what I think they call today a mockumentary, uh, where he goes. Um, he he pretends to be a reporter from Kazakhstan, 
and he comes to the United States to learn lessons that he can bring back to Kazakhstan. Um, as a character, he's a buffoon. Um, he's an egoist. He has all these character flaws, and um, and he's clueless about everything. He's also a racist, a sexist, and all of these kinds of things. All his expressions evidence these kinds of isms that he's working with. And he proceeds to um, interview people or put people in situations where they're forced to deal with his either um, cluelessness or his racism or his sexism or his anti-Semitism. And they don't know what's going on. And consequently, what you've got is a, a whole series of basically practical jokes that he plays on people, both famous people and ordinary people, uh, in his course of traveling through the United States. And the whole thing is tied together in a very kind of loose fashion, and um, it proceeds on the basis of episodes, each one comic in its own right. And Borat, it, I think what he's, you know, what, what a lot of people would say about the film, Borat, the character, is so obviously an idiot, right? That that we should, uh, you know, that, that, that there shouldn't be any complaint at all about uh, uh, about taking this seriously. But uh, some people did, right? Anti-Defamation Defamation League issued a press release registering its concern that some members of the film audience, quoting from Brooke, might not be sophisticated enough to get the joke. Well, I think, you know, the reason I think I wrote this essay was basically about the whole issue of, um, you know, people, when you, you, you talk about jokes, the first thing they're, they're going to say is, well, those jokes are cruel. They, they target some poor person or community or group or what have you. So underlying it all is the question about who are the targets of humor and, and uh, can we actually identify targets in humor and how good or bad are jokes. Uh, I tend not to deal with those kind of questions because they interfere with the, the larger question of how jokes work, how do they do their work. Uh, but, you know, Borat was an obvious example because while the film was extremely popular, it also came in for an awful lot of criticism. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League pronouncement was one of the mildest. Uh, it was banned in certain countries from being shown, uh, and uh, certain writers in The New Yorker and other places uh, characterized the film as essentially insensitive and, and uh, targeting poor people, and um, suits were filed by individuals and on behalf of groups so it, it raised a whole bunch of issues that um, made it a good subject for analysis. Now, I, I believe I can understand Kazakhstan's objections to the to the film. Um, well, yeah, and you, again, but it's a superficial reaction. He yeah. used the word Kazakhstan. He said he was from Kazakhstan. Clearly, there was nothing, nothing about Kazakhstan that really. Uh, comes out in the film. Uh, most people don't know anything about Kazakhstan. It might as well be a mythical country to most Americans. Um, and in fact, I think some people actually thought it was a, a fabricated place. Uh, but in fact, uh, it, it's just kind of an empty space, an empty, what they would call an empty signifier that you could fill with almost anything. And that's what Sasha Cohn did. He just turned this uh, empty place uh, an empty space into into something uh, that uh, people uh, could relate to uh, on the basis of characteristics that he would create. This mm -hmm. kind of cluelessness, primitiveness, anti-Semitic uh, culture, etc., which in fact isn't really characteristic of Kazakhstan. And if the people in Ka the, if the government of Kazakhstan had thought twice about it, um, uh, they would have rather than criticize him, have gone along along with the joke. And later on, they, they kind of apologized to him because he increased tourism to, to Kazakhstan tenfold. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's right. Wow. All of a sudden, people wanted wow. to go to Kazakhstan. They realized they didn't know anything about it. Yeah. They'd hardly ever heard of it. Hmm. Uh, you know, so sometimes, as they say, uh, bad press is better than no press at all. Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't see the film, but it, 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 I'm reading the book... Um that he's saying, and, and <laughs> I, I, I'm uncomfortable finding this funny, but it, but it, I do because it's so ridiculous. For, for, he describes his, his you know, home country as, uh, 
as having a state religion that, quote, unquote, follows the hawk. Yeah. And, uh, you know, celebrates a running of the Jew and the Pamplona style of running of the bulls and that they have superior potassium. I mean, that, that's, uh, again, you get into the problem of, uh, hopefully most people would, would know this is so ridiculous it can't be true. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, humor itself uh, is a, a self-deconstructing form. That is, there's something always that's faulty with any kind of humorous expression. Otherwise, we would take these things for the most part as real, and we wouldn't respond to them as being amusing. And if you don't see what's faulty in a joke, uh, or don't at least sense it, you don't know that it's a joke. And that's also true in the case of more extended forms, like um, the kinds of interviews and and public appearances that um, uh, Borat makes uh, in the film. Um, And... um, you have to see that this isn't this isn't for real. That this is too uh, too extreme to be believable. You asked the question in the book. You've you've dealt with this just a you know a little while ago. I wonder if you re- revisit this. Uh, you ask, would a mythical country worked as well as Kazakhstan for comedic purposes? And you say probably not. Why, why not? Because there's no edge to it. Um, having having a, a a named group or a named person add a certain adds a certain a level of pleasure uh even if it doesn't necessarily uh, characterize um uh the group in question that you're naming to give you a, a simple example there are many jokes that could simply have as this the central character a generic fool and there are many folk tales about fools who are just you know, they're not identified with any particular group or not even identified by name. They're just generic fools. But when all of a sudden you start identifying them with particular groups, it makes it a little more interesting. It gives a certain kind of uh, 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 transgressive quality to the whole that makes the um, the joke or the um, practical joke a little more interesting and a little more amusing. So there's a transgressive quality to it. Mm. But I don't think anybody really learned about Kazakhstan on the basis of watching this movie. Yeah, yeah, let, let's hope not. And and the fact that people were curious about Kazakhstan, increased tourism, that's a benefit. Uh, let's go to our first caller, who's Barbara in Hiram. Barbara, uh, thanks for calling. Go ahead with your oh, question. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a, a little book that I got from Prairie Home Companion, and um, and they call it, a pretty good book, joke book, so they're already calling it, they're already making a joke about the title of it, supposedly being humble Lutherans, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, lots of the jokes are with Lena and Oli, or Sven and Oli. Are these jokes made by Sven and Oli, or are they made by other people making fun of Sven and Oli? It's a fair question, and yeah. often we never get to see who makes up jokes. And in many cases, the very same jokes are told in different societies and different right. cultures with different yeah. characters. So in Utah, Some jokes this go could be back a bishop centuries. and his neighbor instead mm-hmm. of Sven and Oli and be the same joke, right? It, it could. It could yeah. be. Um, there may be some jokes that are really peculiar and trade on an, an element of, you know, upper Midwest um, Lutheran or Scandinavian culture that would only be peculiar to that area. Um, but even there, when you think that's the case, it often proves not to be. But I don't have time to give you some examples okay. of that. Because well, I, uh, like, you know, I consider these kind jokes. They don't, I mean, how could they offend anyone, you know? And they are funny. Um, so I just wondered who made, so they could have traveled from different cultures, obviously, then, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. it, okay. They, and, and from different historical periods. One of the things to keep in mind, for example, one joke, I, kind of joke I talk about at some length uh, in my book is Polish jokes, which were very popular in the early 1960s. And everybody complained about, oh, these are targeting the, uh, the Polish-American community, etc. Uh, and the fact of the matter is... Uh, most people didn't believe that they were learning about the Polish-American community on the basis of these jokes. And quite frankly, and this is the important thing, Poles were telling them as well. well uh, and they were Polish-Americans were telling Polish before. jokes. Lawyers tell lawyer jokes. Along, right? Jews tell Jewish jokes. 
Right. You know, it's not actually right. to a certain extent. I think they're pleased that they they actually have the uh, uh, the recognition to be the subject matter of a joke, and they didn't feel them really to be particularly hostile. But a caveat here is that when somebody tells you a joke, the question is, how well do you know them, and how well do they know you? How well are you going to understand the joke? Right. In, and and the joke in terms of that that p- person's particular attitudes. So if somebody comes up out of the blue and tells you a Polish joke, you might be suspicious. Why are they telling you a Polish joke? On the other hand, if you know the person's a Pole or has good relations with the Polish community or is you know uh, culturally liberal and uh, interacts with all manners of people, you're not going to take it in the same way. So you might laugh about it more if you know that they're a pole. Yeah, if you're, yeah, or it, you know, if you're not suspicious of their intentions. Right. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks, Barbara. Appreciate the the call. You can uh, call toll free. Uh, we'd love to have your interaction with Elliot Oring. His book is Joking Aside. It's out from Utah State University Press, and the number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Toll free anywhere you're listening. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, one more item uh, regarding uh, Borat, uh, Elliot Oring. Um, you write in the book, a uh, problem in uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, film, he uses ordinary people who are unaware they're being tricked. You talk about it's, it's, it could be described as a form of a practical joke. Um, and we're, we're, you point out that we're much more tolerant of this uh, when it's you know, public figures, but if it's ordinary figures who are sort of being, you know, tricked, they don't they don't know uh, what's going on here, um, or quite how to react to this this you know buffoonish uh, character. Uh, sometimes we're uncomfortable with that. Yeah, well, for the most part, I think we play practical jokes on people we know, people in the workplace, for example. Uh, for whatever reason, which uh, I'm not prepared to go into, uh, but there may be many reasons, both positive and negative. But um, the idea is that, uh, you know, he's doing this and putting people in situations of discomfort uh, without explaining to them what what's going on. And um, so I think when you watch the the film, uh, there are two elements to it. There are th- things here that are just outright funny, and there's this other thing about how far he's willing to go, uh, you know, to push a point, how stupid he's willing to be, how insulting he's willing to be, um, and in order to get a comedic result. And he gets very close and sometimes probably crosses the line. And this makes the film both extremely funny at times and extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times those two do go together, don't they? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do. There's, there is a certain kind of edginess to jokes because it, it challenges us in a number of ways. And one is our conceptual categories, even the simplest kind of joke, you know, tricks us, right? Uh, yeah. It starts off with a, you know, with a very simple set of words, and all of a sudden you realize that the words, as they were stated, were not the meaning that you took. Uh, did Melissa pass the bar? Did you ever know Melissa to pass a bar? Well, in the first sentence, you assume that she's, you know, taken a law exam, and you're asking about whether she passed it. And now when somebody says. Did you, did you know? Did you know her ever to pass a bar? It's we, we've been tricked. The person has tricked us into, to uh, our statement is being taken in a completely different way. Yeah. So, um, so there's always some element of that in any kind of joke, even the even the simplest one. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with Elliot Oring, whose book is Joking Asides, The Theory, Analysis, and Aesthetics of Humor. It's out from Utah State University Press. Elliot Oring is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at California State University, Los Angeles. His books include Israeli Humor, Jokes of Sigmund Freud, Jokes and Their Relations. He serves on the editorial board of Humor, International Journal of Humor Research. Uh, You're welcome to join this conversation by phone to 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. On the next Radio Lab. Boom. Explosion. 
Automatic weapons. Who do we want to shoot? Lots of people. When do we want to shoot them? Yesterday. <laughs> What's the face that you see when you picture a terrorist? Those two young boys. Cute little young, innocent looking boys. And what if you're wrong? What I saw does not make sense. It's a gut thing. That's on the next Radio Lab. Do you feel any safer? Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Elliot Oring is my guest for the hour. He's a folklorist drawn to the study of humor. His new book is Joking Asides. It's out from Utah State University Press. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Chapter 7, Risky Business, Political Jokes Under Oppressive Regimes. Uh, this is fascinating, uh, I guess, history, and, and I, was, I was uncomfortable reading this chapter uh, because the stakes are so high. You, you start out the chapter uh, saying that um, in non-repressive uh, societies, telling, for example, sex jokes at the Coast Guard Academy dinner or appearing in blackface telling race jokes at Friars Club banquet can get you, uh, you know, social penalties. But there are many examples uh, throughout history and including uh, recent uh, totalitarian regimes where telling the wrong kind of joke can get you executed. That's right. There are, uh, joke tellers take risks, both artistic and social, and sometimes political. And uh, sometimes social risks in themselves uh, can be devastated, devastating. Uh, that person who told sex jokes at the Coast Guard dinner wound up killing himself because the, the, uh, the comeback on it was so severe uh, that he couldn't, he couldn't take it, and, and, um, and, he, and he killed himself. He committed mm. suicide. So even social uh, reactions can be very severe, but... I think it, you see it most particularly when you have totalitarian regimes that actually try and control everyday intercourse, everyday conversation, and uh, therefore uh, condemn and um, taboo any kind of joking that sends a message that is critical of the regime. You, you've given it several examples, uh, you know, dating back to ancient times. Uh, uh, this this one's just horrible. 1984, Omar al-Haza, top Iraqi officer, made a joke about the identity of Saddam Hussein's mother. Saddam Hussein was sensitive about this. He, he and his four brothers each had different mothers. Uh, so al-Haza's tongue, tongues of his sons were cut out as their wives looked on. Then the male family members were killed, and then... Uh, finally, Al-Haz himself was executed. Uh, this is just one example, and, and not completely unusual in totalitarian regimes. Yeah, well, I mean, that would probably be pretty extreme, but unfortunately there are too many examples where people have lost their lives or livelihoods because of a joke that they've told, because some element of the joke was um, contrary to how the re- regime saw itself and, um, and uh, where it... It challenged them or ridiculed them in some particular way that uh, simply they couldn't tolerate. If they continued to tolerate it, they, I'm sure they believed more and more it would occur until there would be a, a political crisis. Uh, I want to give this example. Here's uh, This is from your book, uh, page 111. A lecture in political science declares, I think this is the Soviet Union, a lecture in political science declares, our country has achieved tremendous gains in the production of meat. Then you hear Heimovich's voice in the audience, where's the meat? And of milk. Heimovich's voice again, but where's the milk? Well, the lecture concludes, are there any questions? A voice from the audience, yes, but where is Heimovich? Yeah, um, that's just one. Yeah, the, Soviet, um, the Soviet Union managed to produce tremendous quantities of political jokes, and, uh, and some of them actually brilliant and they were told all over the place, but in very circumspect um, situations, people told these jokes to people they could trust, to family members and to friends, and not just to anybody, because they realized that the, uh, the potential penalties for telling it to the wrong person was, were very great. And um, it's kind of interesting, and, um, and I've, I've mentioned this to some of my colleagues, particularly those who do work in the in Russia or Belarus or things like that, 
uh, or the the Baltic states. Um, you know, we have all these jokes because there are good collections of them, but very few people have spent time trying to recollect the situations in which these were told. Those are disappearing, and people's memories of these things are going to disappear if they haven't already disappeared. So knowing when and to whom a joke is told is very often as important as knowing what the text of the joke is. Yeah, that, I see that's it's obviously important. You, you say the context is disappearing. That That seems dangerous if we forget that. Yeah, uh, well, it seems dangerous in the sense that we, when we come back to revisit these jokes, we're going to lose a lot of the kind of information that would help us understand what these jokes were doing and how they were functioning. You know, it's kind of the situation uh, that an archaeologist faces when they dig up a site. In the in the act of digging up the site, a lot of information gets lost that's not going to be recoverable uh, because n- new techniques may come along that uh, uh, that enable you to analyze certain things, but because we di- dug it up today and we didn't have those techniques, we were insensitive to the possibility that we were destroying important information. It happens all the time, and it happens certainly here where we've got the jokes, but we no longer uh, have, except in a very general way, a sense of who these people told uh, these things to, under what conditions, at what times. I mean, even knowing who you would tell jokes to and who you wouldn't tell jokes to, I don't think I've seen one description of one person saying, well, I told jokes to my mother, my father, my sister, and my good friend, but I would never tell jokes to, you know, we don't even have an account like that. Mm. These are, many of these are known as whispered jokes, right, because of the, the care you had to take. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It comes from the, you know, the, the German term Flüsterwitze, which is whispered, whispered jokes. Yeah. And, yeah, they were told with circumspection. I wonder if you tell me about uh, uh, Klava. Very interesting. A Jewish woman from Odessa, born in 1948, and uh, she remembers growing up with the political uh, jokes. Uh, it's. I think we. I don't know. Sometimes we forget the just the tension that must have been in living in, in the society like that. Uh, she wanted to emigrate, but she knew that as soon as she applied to to leave the country, she'd lose her job as an engineer. So she became a manicurist. Yeah, she's interesting, Uh, and in fact, that particular account of hers was uh, requoted in the English edition of the Moscow Times because it's it's a a very uh, concentrated sense of how jokes were both dangerous and how the KGB could work at that time, where she's working now as a manicurist, and um, and somebody comes in whom she's worked on before. Uh, who's going on vacation and wants to have her nails done, and she says, yeah, just wait around, and I'll get to you after I get to my scheduled customers. And um, so the woman waits, and in the meantime, she's doing all these other people's nails, and they're telling Lenin jokes because it's an anniversary of Lenin. So Lenin becomes a major joke topic, and there are a lot of jokes around uh, Lenin. And when she finally gets to the... um, Late arrival who came in, um, she said. Uh, the late arrival says, "You know who I am." And she says, "Yeah, you're a, uh, you're, you're Ludmilla." And yeah, do you know where I work? Yeah, in the municipal hall. Do you know what section or department I work in? She says, "I have no idea." Well, it's department number one, which was the KGB. And then this woman says, um, "You know." There was a competition. She recapitulates a a well-known joke. There was a competition for the best joke about Lenin. And the first prize is 10 years. That is in the gulag. Hmm. And and then she said to Klava, if I didn't value you as my manicurist, I'd send you off for 10 years. Wow. And at that point, you know, Klava realized that she had a close call and she hadn't she wanted to emigrate, but she hadn't put in her ap- application because her family didn't want her to, to emigrate. But she called them together and said, look, I'm going to try and get out of here. And she managed to get an emigration permit uh, fairly quickly and left. But what's so interesting about that is that this KGB person kind of uh, you know, sanctions Klava for telling jokes and then, of course, uses a joke to threaten her. Uh, the very kind of prescribed expression that she's condemning, she uses to actually 
uh, frighten and uh, and criticize Clava, uh, and um, and she's using you know, and then she lets her go. You know, so there's a kind of arbitrariness to the whole system, which a number of commentators have have uh, mentioned uh, with respect to the uh, Soviet systems of repression. Is that there wasn't a good sense of what the rules were. There was too much arbitrariness in it, and this was a very good example of 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 um, how that worked. Just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I want to just treat this briefly. To, uh, later in this chapter, you. Uh, Mention a, a theory, a hypothesis that um, suggests that humor and comedy engender hope. And you're, you're talking about, in this case, in repressive uh, regimes, although you go on to say, you know, not exactly, you must wonder what exactly in the Soviet Union there was to hope for. But uh, this idea that uh, humor and comedy engender hope. Yeah, it's a very common, uh, it's a very common idea. Uh, it's been expressed uh, a number of times. You can think of jokes in this sense as a kind of a consolation literature. Um, but the question is, I mean, I don't think we really have the studies that would demonstrate that this, there's something to this or that there's nothing to this. It's kind of become a, a truism uh, that really needs to be investigated in a more thorough way. We know that uh, victimized populations often do joke about their own situation. Um, question is why? And one of the things that this chapter about uh, risky business and on, on political joking investigates is six different hypotheses about political joking, and none of them really works very well. Uh, so it seems to me, you know, we, we're aware of the phenomenon of political joking. We may be aware of the risks of political joking, but we don't fully understand why people are willing to take those risks to tell and perform these jokes um, as, as they do in many kinds of situations, with the Soviet Union being one prominent example. Well, the book's a very interesting book. It's called Joking Aside, subtitles The Theory, Analysis, and Aesthetics of Humor. It's out from Utah State University Press. Elliot Oring is uh, the author and has been our guest for the hour. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, hope you'll uh, tune in tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Etched Magazine, an artistic expression of life in the Southwest, celebrating the desert dwellers, adventure seekers, soul searchers, art lovers, and the culture creators who reside within the grandeur of the great Southwest. More online at etchedmagazine.com. And the Utah State University Alumni Association, celebrating Homecoming Week with the Homecoming 5K Saturday, September 24th. Information at usu.edu slash homecoming. So imagine a TV show that's really slow. 18 hours. And nothing much happens. Just fishing. Took three hours before we got the first fish. Sounds pretty great, right? But when slow TV actually aired in Norway... 1.2 million Norwegians watched this program. I'm Guy Raz, taking things a little bit slower. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM, Logan.